Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of the first book of Samuel, chapters one through three, and now Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. There was no true presence of God because there was no ark. Jeremiah had hit the ark in 2 Maccabees 2. We're told that the place where the ark is hidden shall remain unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. Then the Lord will disclose these things, and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear. Now Mary's in there in the Holy of Holies. That time is now. Little Mary is the new ark of a new covenant, but there's no contents in her womb yet, in her tabernacle, in her container, in her ark, right? Because she's a three-year-old little girl, but she loves to be in the Holy of Holies because guess what? The ark belongs in the Holy of Holies. Little Mary was the Ark of the New Covenant, and the Ark of God was back in the temple again, but there were no contents inside the Ark yet. Mary was at home in the temple, in the Ark. The Ark was back. Now, Anna would have known Hannah's song very, very well, especially as a barren woman, especially a woman named after her. Hannah, Anna, Mary. And Anna would have taught it to her own daughter, Mary, the song of Hannah. And Mary, as a little three-year-old, is very much like a little three-year-old Samuel boy running into Eli and the temple of the Lord in Shiloh because this one hadn't been built yet. But Mary was very comfortable. This same Mary at age 12 would be visited by an angel and the content of the ark would be fulfilled and Mary would be with child, a virgin with child. That doesn't happen every day. And that child would be from the house of David, from the tribe of Judah. And those were the good years when they had him at home in Nazareth. And when Jesus was 12 years old and he gets lost, where does he run? To the temple. Didn't you know mom and dad you'd find me here at the true presence of God? He's the contents of her ark. Of course he'd be in the temple. Just like you were mom when you were three. Didn't you know? Duh, mom. Was it lost? Didn't you know where I'd be? The place you loved. So there are five women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and Mary. And Matthew tells us that there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from the deportation, the David to the deportation of Babylon, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. Why does Matthew do that? Because the Hebrew gematria, the, the value of each letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a number, and David's name adds up to 14. 14, 14, 14. Oh yeah, and one more thing. Of the men listed in Matthew's genealogy, guess what number David is? 14. 14, 14, 14. Matthew is screaming, David, David, David. And he starts out his genealogy saying, Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. So, Samuel. We're, we're studying Samuel today, and Samuel plays a very key role in the transition from the people of the biblical judges, we talked about we're in the time of the judges, to the institution of a kingdom under King Saul. And again, in the transition from King Saul to King David, Samuel is going to be venerated by Jews, by Christians, and by Muslims. We all claim him as one of our prophets. Samuel was a miracle child. 
His name means God heard or God has heard my prayer. Hannah prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and God heard and gave her a supernatural conception, Samuel. Samuel is one of only eight people in the entire Bible who gets his name called twice. Like Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob, Moses, Moses, Simon, Simon. Jesus calls out to his father, my God, my God. And Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Samuel is one of those eight. Samuel, Samuel. The book of Judges tells us about 12 judges. But first, Samuel introduces two more. Eli, the high priest, is a judge of Israel, and Samuel is the final judge of Israel. Why is he last? Because after Samuel, Israel will be led by kings. God gave them kings until Samuel, or gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, we're told in Acts 13. Samuel will anoint the first two kings of Israel when the people are going to clamor to be like the other nations. God will direct Samuel to anoint Saul. He's who the people want. He's tall and handsome and ruddy. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. But that wasn't the right one. Then God will ask Samuel to anoint a young shepherd boy to replace Saul a shepherd boy named David. Why can Samuel anoint what gives him the authority? There were no kings yet, but Samuel is a priest and a prophet, and he will anoint Israel's first two kings, he who listens to God and obeys. We talked about that last week, to hear and obey. Samuel will listen, God heard, and, and his mother conceived, but now Samuel will hear God's word and obey as well. We're told in Acts 3, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet from your brethren as he raised me up, and you shall listen to him and do whatever he tells you. The fulfillment of that is Deuteronomy 18, 18. Jesus is that prophet, that new Moses. It goes on to say, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came afterwards also proclaimed these days. St. Peter gave that impassioned speech after he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Samuel was the first of the prophets, and a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God, a mouthpiece for God. Now, all of you sitting here, if you've been baptized, you are a prophet. You are a mouthpiece for God by virtue of your baptism into Jesus Christ. It's in the catechism. Uh, it's in the catechism. Jesus fulfilled the messianic hope of Israel in his threefold office. Jesus is all three. He's a priest, prophet, and a king. And we are told that Christ, the high priest and unique mediator, has made the church a kingdom of priests for God and Father. The whole community of believers is priestly. You have a ministerial priesthood, too. You're not just a prophet. You're also a priest. You minister to your family. You minister to people you work with. You have a ministry. You minister, you're in a ministerial priesthood. The whole community of believers is priestly. The faithful exercise their baptismal priesthood through the participation, each according to his own vocation. And in Christ's mission as priest, prophet, and king, through the sacrament of baptism and confirmation, the faithful are consecrated to be a holy priesthood of people set apart. That's us now. And Jesus Christ is the one whom the Father anointed with the Holy Spirit and established as priest, prophet, and king. And the whole people of God participate in these three offices and bear the responsibility for mission and service that flow from them. So you're a prophet in your family, like Samuel was. You're a priest and you're a king because you're a beloved son or daughter of God. You are in a royal line. 
You are in his image and his likeness, male and female, he created them. You are a priest, a prophet, and king by virtue of your baptism. Now let's talk about Samuel as a priest. His ministry will begin today when he's going to serve Eli. And then Samuel will make sacrifices on behalf of the people. He'll be an intercessor, a go-between for God and the people. That's what a priest does. Samuel was also a Nazarite. From Numbers chapter 6, he's going to take that Nazarite vow. His mother will vow that he's a Nazarite. Like mighty Samson, the judge before him, who was also a supernatural conception and also dedicated to the Lord as a Nazarite. He would never take alcohol, he would never cut his hair, and he would never touch death. Samuel led the greatest Passovers. We're told in scriptures that hundreds and hundreds of years after Samuel's death, little King Josiah celebrated the Passover. And it is said that it was such a great affair. The author says it was the greatest Passover ever, well, ever since Samuel's day. So Samuel offered fabulous Passovers as a priest. Samuel is remembered for his prayers. The psalmist who penned Psalm 99 will rank Samuel up there with Moses and Aaron as one who called upon the name of the Lord. He is mentioned in Psalm 99. He lived in Ramah, and I want to show you the first arrow is Ramah. It is northern northern Israel, way up there by Tyre and Sidon. It's in the West Bank today. And then the second arrow is Shiloh. There's no temple in Jerusalem yet, so the Ark of the Covenant for over 350 years rested in Shiloh. And then the third arrow down is Jerusalem, where the temple will be eventually. Okay, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, those taken captive were assembled in Ramah before they were deported on to Babylon. And Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 40, he says, a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. They're being taken to Babylon and they're resting there in Ramah, weeping, wailing, Rachel is the ancestress of three tribes, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. We're talking about all of them lately. And she so desired children. She was also infertile, remember? And she considered herself dead. She said, I shall die if I can't have children, Jacob. Rachel died in childbirth with her second son, Benjamin, and she's buried in the West Bank. This is Rachel's tomb. It's one of the most popular places for both Christians, Jews, and Muslims to visit. In the New Testament, Ramah is mentioned again in Matthew 2.18 because this is where the massacre of the innocents took place, right near Rachel's tomb. And again, she is wailing for her children who are no more because Herod is slaughtering them outside of Bethlehem, right by her grave. And you have to go by her grave because she died in childbirth. She doesn't get to be buried with the patriarchs. Remember, Jacob had to bury her on the road. This is where she's buried, right outside of Bethlehem. And you have to go past it to get to the highway that goes to Ramah. So at the time of the Babylon exile, and again at the wailing of the innocents, passing by Rachel's tomb, going north to Ramah. Rachel's tomb is still a very important place of pilgrimage for the three monotheistic big world religions. And this is the tomb of Samuel today. Samuel is buried in Ramah. It's the West Bank. Muslims have built a mosque over Samuel's grave. If you go up onto the roof, you can see a 360-degree beautiful view of the Holy Land. He is buried in the, in the lower floor there. And uh, his house, archaeologists have discovered his house outside. They found his altar with the four horns for sacrifices. They have found the pen where he used to keep sheep and goats to, to offer sacrifice. So this is who we're moving into now. I wanted to give you a little background on Samuel, the first prophet, and that transition 
traditional character between judges and prophets and kings. So just recently, this year, in 2021, we sell, the Jews celebrated Rosh Hashanah. Maybe some of you have Jewish friends. It just happened, Rosh Hashanah. It was uh, September 6th through 8th this year. And this is the start of the Jewish New Year. And it will be the start of the days of awe. There will be 10 days of repentance and contrition and, and leading to Yom Kippur, another high holy feast day, a day of atonement at one month with the Lord. So you make peace with everyone in your life at the beginning of the Jewish New Year. The 10 days, the days of awe from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are both considered Jewish high holy feast days. They're very important. Guess what they read on Rosh Hashanah? what we studied today. The reading in their lectionary for the Haftarah reading on Rosh Hashanah is 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, what we are studying today. Coincidence? I don't know. We'll see. There was a certain man, we're starting 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathizoethium in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. That means God has purchased. Elkanah means God has purchased. The son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuv, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, his first wife, she's listed first, Hannah. And the name of the other, Peniah. First wife, Hannah, means favor or grace. Mm. Second wife, Peniah, means pearl or coral. Okay. And Peniah and her child had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Remember, there's no temple yet. The Ark of the Covenant is at Shiloh. This is the Shiloh tabernacle. This is the actual, what it looks like today. The Ark stayed there for over 350 years at this time. There's Ramah, way up there. There's Shiloh and then Jerusalem is lower. So there's Shiloh, where the red arrow is. It's uh, in that tribe space of Ephraim, okay? And that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, Elkanah would go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. So we have Eli, the high priest, and his two sons, Hopni and Phinehas. On the day when Eli, El Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. And although he loved Hannah, he would give Hannah only one portion because the Lord had closed her womb. She didn't have a lot of kids to feed. So he gives her one, and the other wife with all the kids gets more. Ugh. And her rival used to provoke her sorely and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, that immediately reminded me of Sarah and Hagar in Genesis. It also reminded me of Leah and Rachel. Rachel couldn't get pregnant, and Leah was having all these kids, and she was the first wife because the trick of the veil. Remember all that? Penea had children, but Hannah had no children. And her rival used to provoke her sorely and irritate Hannah because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now, what kind of spirit did you discern operating here? The Paniah spirit. In the Old Testament, we know a woman named Jezebel. And we say she, there's a, I, I sense a Jezebel spirit here. She was that evil wife of King Ahab at the time of Elijah. You remember her. But what about the spirit of Paniah? What spirit do you discern operating in this woman? The spirit of Paniah 
is one of rejoicing in the misfortune of others. Rejoicing in the misfortune of others. Have you ever done that? In your deepest heart of hearts, have you ever been a little bit happy? Why are you all nervously laughing and moving in your chairs? Rejoicing at the misfortune of others. We're so human, aren't we? We're so human. That's the spirit of Paniah. Oh, that serves her right. He got his just rewards. Ah, they deserve that misfortune. Good, I'm glad they finally got theirs. All those people rejoicing in the misfortune of others. Unfortunately, many Christians are very, very good at this. It's easy to have the spirit of Paniah, especially when the misfortune of others has a tendency to make us look better. But God says we must never rejoice in the iniquity or the misfortune of others. Proverbs 24, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. That's the spirit of Paniah, rejoicing at someone else's misfortune. So it went by year after year. And as often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Year by year by year by year. And the commentators say this went on for 20 years. Infertility. And some in this room have struggled with infertility. Steve and I had secondary infertility. We have a six-year gap in the middle there where, where we experienced some infertility. And it's so painful but we had two kids. And if that was all we ever had, we had two kids. But people who cannot have a baby, they know the deep grief of that. Some in here, no. Pregnancy test says no again. No, 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 we're not getting pregnant. No, we can't have a baby. It's infertility and it's a very deep, 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 deep wound. So it went on year after year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and she would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not enough for you? Am I not better than 10 sons? Would that help your heart, ladies? He's trying to comfort her. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Remember when Ruth finally got pregnant and the women of the town said, oh, oh, Naomi, your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, she's more to you than seven sons. Showing this great worth of a child, the greatest gift that God could possibly give is to let us co-create with him. We don't do it on our own. We do it with our husband and we do it with God. To bless her with life in her womb would be the greatest gift she could know. And this is why abortion is such a deception that the baby's not God's greatest gift for whatever reason. The greatest gift that God could give to let a woman know that she's a co-creator along with God would be to bless her life, her womb with life, to fill her tabernacle, to fill her temple with what it was created for, to bear life. Elgnina, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Am I not worth more than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting at the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Hannah was deeply distressed. And she prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow, which we don't always think about vows now in our day and age, but a vow to them was a solemn promise to God. Let me be struck dead if I do not keep my vow to the Lord. And she vowed a vow to God. And she said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look upon the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me and not forget thy maidservant, but will let me, will give to thy maidservant a son, then I, Lord, I will give him 
to the Lord all the days of my life. No razor will touch his head. She's making the Nazarite vow now from Numbers chapter 6, the same one Samson had. No alcohol, no razor, no encounter with death. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. That's her vow. And as Hannah continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. He's standing there watching her. She doesn't know she's being watched, and he's looking at her mouth. And Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips were moving. And her voice was not heard. This is important. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunk woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you be drunken? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, oh, no, my Lord. I am a woman sorely troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your maidservant as a base woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. How does Hannah describe her prayer? She's been pouring out her soul before the Lord. Sometimes people do this in Eucharistic adoration. They go in there and they weep and they pour out their soul before the Lord. There's just him and them. And they're telling him everything from the depths of their soul. And they're crying and their tears are dripping on the tile. All along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. When you pray, do you pour out your soul to the Lord and do you tell him every single thing you're worried about? Do you give him every single anxiety? Do you tell him all your vexations? You say, what's a vexation? I looked it up. Something that causes annoyance or frustration or worry. He wants to know about it. And Eli sees, he sees her, but he doesn't hear her, but he hears her heart, just as God hears our hearts when we pray. And Hannah cannot change her destination, her destiny alone. She can't have a baby all on her own. God needs to remember her in order for her to conceive. Because ladies, we are co-creators with our husbands and God. He allows us that privilege of imaging the Trinity with our husband and then bearing life to the world through a new person like the Holy Spirit of life and love. Now, Hannah has disenfranchised grief. Have you ever heard this term in psychology, disenfranchised grief? It is a grief for a loss that cannot be openly acknowledged, publicly mourned, or socially supported. Sometimes things are too embarrassing, too close to home, you're too ashamed that you can't speak it publicly. And you carry this grief in the depth of your heart that only you and the Lord know. And some of you are nodding and you know what I'm talking about. It's called disenfranchised grief, and Hannah had it over her fertility. I have grief right now. My mom passed away on Saturday, and it's a grief I can share. And the body of Christ is going to come around us on Friday and Saturday and help us bury our mama and give her a great send-off of a great celebration for a life well-lived. But Hannah has disenfranchised grief. It's a grief that she can't share with anybody. It's not cool to talk about your infertility in the first century in Ramah. Oh, you're not being blessed by God. Oh, what did she do? God's not blessing her with a child. Oh, I see. So she carries that burden. I have a friend who has a son in prison, and it's a disenfranchised grief that she carries because she doesn't talk about it with a lot of people. She's ashamed that her son's in prison. He'll be there for many years. So I always ask her, how's your son in prison? And she'll talk to me about it. But she carries a lot of disenfranchised grief, all sorts of different things, marital affairs, People carry a deep, disenfranchised grief. They can't really share it publicly. It's not cool. You don't want to share it. Disenfranchised grief. Any burden you carry that you can't share with others, and you can only share it with the Lord, and there's been some loss. People addicted to pornography have disenfranchised grief. You say, well, what did they lose? They lost their freedom because now they're in bondage, and they can't break free, and it's not cool to talk about it with people. 
Raise your hand if you have a pornography addiction. I'm just kidding. But you know what I mean? It's something you can't talk about. Hannah, in Hannah's day, this infertility was a great disenfranchised grief that she carried. But she says, I pour it out to the Lord. She told him all her anxiety, all her worries, all her fears, all her loss, all her grief, all the pain she couldn't share with anyone else, even the people she lived with. And Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition which you have made to him. Remember, he didn't hear it. He just saw her lips moving, but he didn't hear it. And he says, go in peace. Your petition has been granted. How does he know? Go in peace after 20 years of infertility? I've been here every year praying the same prayer. Go in peace? Did Eli know? Or was it more like James 2, where if you have a brother or sister ill-clad and lack of daily food, and you say to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What does that profit? Eli tells her, go in peace, lady, go in peace. But what we must remember is that Eli is sitting as the high priest of Israel and he is sitting in a prophetic office. And so when he tells her to go in peace, he's the mouthpiece of the Lord. The high priest of Israel holds a prophetic office as Caiaphas did after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the whole city is buzzing and saying, oh my gosh, we got a problem. The chief priests and the Pharisees, the high priests say, we got a problem. This guy is, the whole world's going to believe him. We got to stop this guy. And it was Caiaphas, the high priest in his prophetic office. He was high priest that year and he said, you know nothing at all. You not understand that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people so that the whole nation will not perish. He's speaking in the prophetic office of the high priest, and that's exactly right. One man would die for the whole nation and for the whole world. So the high priest in a prophetic office tells Hannah to go in peace. Her prayer has been granted. God has heard her prayer, even though he did not. And Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel will grant your petition, which you have made to him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman Hannah went her way and ate, and her countenance was no longer sad. Now that's huge. Her whole countenance has changed. Now that the high priest said her prayer has been granted, her whole countenance has changed. She's happy. She's eating. She's full of joy. And all along she had been pouring out grief and anxiety and vexation, and now she's happy. She's going to trust the Lord. She's going to trust the prophetic office of the high priest. They rose early in the morning. They worshiped before the Lord, she and her husband, and then they went back to Ramah, and Elkanah knew Yada. He knew her in the marital way. He knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her like the Lord remembered Noah. The Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. God's greatest gift, a child, to be a co-creator with God. And she called his name Samuel. God heard. I have asked of the Lord and God has heard my prayer, she said. Samuel means God hears. God has heard. And the man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and abide there, how long? Forever. Now this cute little baby who she's nursing for the first year, for the second year, for the third year. She wants to nurse this kid till he's 90. That was part two of the first book of Samuel, chapters one through three, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.